This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Online learning is still online learning. There is a reason why we have had kids going into classrooms before now at all levels. And so what exactly do we need to know about e-learning, whether it is brand new to somebody, whether they have taken online courses over the summer. Well, Matthew Baisley is the Director of Business Services and Global Initiatives in Western's Faculty of Education, and he has just led an extensive e-learning review on that campus at Western and also led development of Western's online teacher micro-credential. So he joins us now to talk about that. Matthew, thanks so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks very much for asking. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. I think everybody's got a lot of questions in terms of how this is all going to work out. So why don't we look at your e-learning review? What went into doing an e-learning review? Where did that start? The e-learning review at Western started with, um, first of all, taking a look at what's happening in the post-secondary landscape. How are students accessing education? How are they um, learning? How, how, what's their preferences for learning? Um, as education becomes more important and, and in terms of just-in-time learning and uh, ensuring that people are getting what they need at any stage of their career, we wanted to make sure that learning was available uh, to people, not just uh, you know, for undergraduates, but also for working professionals who live uh, very busy lives. So that was the majority of the impetus of the review to ensure that Western was as accessible as possible. Um, and what, it, what did you find? Well, what we found was uh, that, uh, A, uh, learners are coming at any different ages. For example, at the doctoral level, you could have our average age is at uh, mid-40s. And these are working professionals, uh, directors of schools and that kind of thing. And what they needed to have is they need to have something that fit into their circumstances. So we need to ensure that uh, learning was accessible, was flexible, recognize that there's multiple competing priorities for these learners, and also to um, ensure that within Canada, we're a sparse population and we want to make learning available uh, to anybody in Canada, regardless of their, where they live. Sounds great. Well, we're talking with Matthew Baisley, Director of Business Services and Global Initiatives in Western's Faculty of Education. Matthew, what would you look at as being some keys to successful e-learning or online virtual learning? Some of the keys for virtual learning is one is that the um, we have to recognize that there's a different pedagogy. There's a different way of approaching learning. Um, learning has to shift away from the Industrial Revolution model where we're simply transferring education and we're moving towards more of a, what we call a constructivist model, where we are building on students' existing uh, learning and existing knowledge base. So Google has more or less uh, taken away any um, ability for the learner, for the educator to say, I have the content. We're no longer, we should not be pretending that we're just content experts uh, filling students' heads with knowledge. We should be looking at a higher order of learning, such as synthesis, evaluation, uh, making judgment calls, because knowledge and content is no longer a commodity in education. Uh, Google's replaced that. Hmm. 
That's a great point. I mean, it's it's done that in our brains. If you think, oh, who is the actor that played this? You don't need to sit there and talk for five minutes and try A, B, C, try and figure it out. You go to Google and you pop it in and the conversation moves forward. So in learning, how much of that do you think has been adapted and how much still needs to be adapted? Where do you think we sit? Well, one of the biggest predictors of how a person teaches, how, what is their belief around teaching, is how they were taught. So we are looking at a bit of a paradigm shift um, brought about by COVID uh, because uh, a lot of teachers, particularly in the K-12 space, in the, in, in, are, are, were educated in ways that I was, for example, uh, with the teacher at the front of the class and, and uh, rows of desks. And that is not appropriate for an online learning space. So the, the, the big challenge is, is that the big gap is uh, shifting the pedagogy, even though a lot of our educators have not experienced been able had the opportunity to learn online much like our students are today sure so they kind of have to learn themselves how someone would learn online and then deliver learning online that that sounds tough it is it is what it, what it really starts with is you have to start with the educators assumptions about learning and unearthing a lot of those assumptions and belief systems making them a little more conscious of it and from there then you can say well that that might have been appropriate in the 80s, uh, back when I was in, high, in grade school and high school, but now this is a different world. Um, I have two teenage daughters. I'm deeply informed by watching them, how they network with their friends uh, at midnight over a math problem. This is now the new reality. And so school doesn't start at 8 and end at 4. These kids are now doing it 24-7 through Google or with their friends, and uh, our pedagogy has to catch up. What do you think of that? Do you think that's healthy? Is, is that okay that we kind of stretch it out? Because they weren't working from the time they got home from school until midnight, but it just so happened that this came up, and boom, they're dealing with it now. Do you like that aspect of learning? I think we have to be careful around how much creep there is and, and making sure we carve time away from screens, particularly for youngsters. Um, the research is clear that we, we you know students need to get out, or kids need to get out and, and see the sky, the sun, uh, enjoy themselves on their bicycles. So there has to be that balance. However, um, there, there, so, so with that in mind, uh, the, the benefit also is there's a fluidity. Uh, the, the students are able to um, do things at their leisure. So you might have students that work better at a certain time of day than others. Um, and I think one thing that is we're not capturing a lot of here uh, in, in the current context is that there's a lot of students who do not fit the traditional model of schooling. They it, they have a hard time sitting under, you know, sitting down. They have a hard time behaving the typical way that students behave. My wife is a special education teacher, and this online learning paradigm is actually working for some of these students because it it's made learning more accessible because it's it's multimodal and the students are able to work through problems at their own time at their own pace, uh, oftentimes assisted by. The, our educational assistance in the school system, which is often, which which can be beneficial. So we're, COVID has unfortunately kind of forced the conversation, but we've actually been able to achieve more of diversity in terms of our teaching, um, number the number of tools and the, and the pedagogies um, as a result of this of this pandemic. Matthew Baisley joining us, Director of Business Services and Global Initiatives in Western's Faculty of Education. 
And Matthew just led a, an extensive e-learning review on campus and has done a lot of thinking about how things are delivered. If we look at this going to next week, even if you have a post-secondary school student in your home, or certainly if you have a high school student or even an elementary school student, it's always great when parents and grandparents can get involved in their learning and, and kind of oversee this. I imagine that is twofold when you've got them learning from home. Is there anything that you think could be beneficial for students to help them acclimate to an online learning that could last for months, maybe even the whole school year? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to have a bit of a, a bit of a schedule. Um, Students do better when there's a bit of a, a bit of a rigor or structure around it. So you want to make sure that um, the pedagogy of online learning is it's almost like a project-based learning where you're going to be, uh, I'll give you an example, uh, Alex Doria, who is a good colleague of mine, is a kindergarten teacher. And if you ask me five years how online learning will work in kindergarten, so there's absolutely no way, but I've seen it happen. And so Alex, uh, what she does is, is she uh, has these students build out these bees and these beehives for these kindergarten students, and they, they take a picture of it, and they upload it, and there's a whole online discussion about it. Um, having the rigor and having the um, schedule in place is really important, but also the parents can get involved because oftentimes these are um, – the work that's being done is using things around the home, especially for the younger students. And so uh, for the grandparents and parents, it you know uh, – Use use what's around you, you know, in your environment to to augment the learning. Um, the, the learning is is simply the mo- is a, is a tool, the conduit within which you express your, what's happening. But uh, oftentimes, I've seen some of these um, teachers who are teaching in the younger kids, and they do an incredible job of actually, uh, you know, using what's at home uh, in order to augment the learning. Excellent. And then, I guess, as a final question. How about if this does go on for an extended period of time, challenges that exist for, I guess, both teachers and students, and I guess even yeah. parents and grandparents, if this yeah. does go on for a long time, what do we have to be aware of and, and maybe pay attention to? Well, in the K-12 space, in the, in the elementary and school, uh, secondary school panel, one of the big functions of, of education is socialization, of learning how to get along, uh, whether that be sharing a lunch table or what have you. Uh, we want to ensure that these students have an opportunity to be with other students, whether that be, um, you know, learning in pods, which is something we've been reading about in the media, whether it be they have a game night uh, with, with friends and, and perhaps even away from the screen. Uh, a good old Monopoly game has a, there's a lot of good learning there. So I would encourage people to, uh, you know, reach out within the neighborhood, uh, get people together safely. And, and, and do things that may be away from the screen, but also are constructive in the way they do things. Uh, we, we know that coloring teaches dexterity also has a number of different benefits to it. So uh, when you're not on the screen and doing your online learning, look for opportunities where learning can happen in an old-fashioned way with some kids sitting around a dining room table. <laughs> Great point. Matthew, this this has been excellent. Thank you for all the work that you have done. Thank you for describing kind of how things will work and some ideas on how to make them work even better. Keep safe. Thank you for your, thank you for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Matthew Baisley, Director of Business Services and Global Initiatives in Western's Faculty of Education, because let's face it, this virtual learning, online learning right now is going to take place for, as Linda Scott had pointed out, about 3,000 students in the London District Catholic School Board, and it is far more 
from the Thames Valley District School Board. Now, if you look at the size of the school boards, you know, that's that's to be expected. But at the same time, we have the unknown out there, which could have everybody reverting to online learning again. And it can't go back to what it was in the fall. And the idea is that it won't, that there is a much different plan in place and there is going to be more of that online commitment, but there is still, there's still tough stuff out there. And we'll talk with Mark Fisher about this. The idea of people who are in a rural setting who may not have internet that allows them to plug in and, and be seamless throughout the day. How many people can put their hand in the air? Can you do it? I, don't, I can't put mine in the air necessarily and say, I guarantee you that my internet will be seamless. No problems whatsoever. It will not go down. A device will not say, sorry, can't connect to the Internet right now. It'll happen. So what do you do in those instances, and how difficult will that become? And the idea of young kids learning at home. If you talk to teachers who went through this, they will tell you it was very difficult. Because even if you did get into a collective setting, you had kids who were just kind of laughing and giggling at the fact that each other's face was on the screen. Somehow you have to get through that and then get into some productive content. So there are some big challenges to come, and it's uncharted territory. Do you know where London Live would be tomorrow? We would be in a place where we have been the last couple of years, and it's a great place to be. We would be hearing the finishing tests of the rides. You want to go faster? That would be echoing. We would hear the dinging of the midway. You would smell things like cotton candy and deep fried everything. We would be at Western Fair. And there are a lot of us who who really can't wait for the start of Western Fair. It brings back excellent memories And it still brings a whole lot of fun. Being 2020, being a pandemic, things are going to be a little bit different. But you know what? The fair kicks off tomorrow. However, you don't have to find a way to get to Western Fair because it's coming to you. So how exactly is that going to work? Do Do you have to clear out a room in the basement for this? No, no, just... You might want to clear out the room in the basement. It, it could get something done. That's, that's maybe on the to-do list. Don't worry about doing that. The, the fair is not going to be staying overnight. It's going to be available to you in any number of ways. So let's find out how exactly this is going to work. We are joined right now by the Director of Marketing and Media Communications with the Western Fair Association, Greg Blanchard. Greg, how is the final day before a totally different kind of Western Fair kicks off going? Well, thanks, uh, Mike. Yeah, you, you you painted a great picture there. You almost made me feel like I was at the actual fair. But, uh, you know, uh, you're right. Uh, we've uh, got different circumstances this year that we're working with, and uh, we're excited about our first ever virtual fair. So um, what's surprising us, I think, is how much planning and work uh, is involved Um we uh, we kind of thought there might be a little bit of a break because this is uh, always crunch time as we're getting ready for opening day typically. 
And, uh, you know, it has that same sort of feel to it and a lot of buzz. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been busy planning 10 days of a virtual fair with virtual content. And, of course, the new augmented reality piece that we're excited about where um, people can visit different locations throughout the city uh, and through their smartphone uh, get to experience some of the favorite elements of the traditional fair. Okay, so let's kind of go through how we do this if we're not going to be walking through the gates what's the first thing that we do to get involved in 2020 in the western fair so the first thing you want to do is download the app so uh, you're looking for uh, what's called engage art and uh, it's uh, capital a capital r small t engage art app and uh, that's a local company called xr studios that we've been working with uh, they've been busy over the last month and a half or so uh, developing this and putting all the content together. So, um, you know, it's really amazing what they've been able to pull together. So once you have the, the app downloaded, and you can do so uh, anytime now, it's available in the Apple Store or Google Play, uh, and then check for an update either tonight or tomorrow morning on that, and uh, you'll know that the Western Fair Experience, as it's called, is live. And once you have the app downloaded, uh, you visit one of the designated locations throughout the city. You can go to our website, westernfair.ca, to find out if there's uh, a location near you. Uh, and through the uh, app itself, it can also direct you to one of those uh, designated spots. So as mentioned, uh, approximately 30 locations throughout the city, uh, primarily major parks and outdoor locations. So they're easily recognizable. They're easy to find, easy to get to. And they'll allow lots of room for social distancing, um, you know, should a number of people want to go and, and uh, have that experience at the same time. And you simply do it through the uh, camera on your smartphone. It's pretty amazing. Uh, that's where the experience will uh, play itself out in front of you. And it makes you feel like you're right in amongst, um, you know, potentially farm animals, um, you know, in a horticultural display, uh, perhaps in the midway. So, it's uh, it's really neat. We haven't seen it all yet. The uh, guys are putting the finishing touches on it today, and we're looking forward to seeing it tomorrow. So when is the best time to download the app, then? Is it available now, or should we kind of wait until the fair kicks off tomorrow at 3? Oh, it's available now. Um, but as you say, if, if you download it now, don't, don't panic. Um, either uh, later this evening or tomorrow, there will be a notification. Uh, alerting people that uh, there's been an update uh, to the app and it will have the Western ex- uh, Fair experience um, in there. And then you can you can simply go uh, to one of these locations at your own leisure and, um, and uh, have that uh, fair experience. So each day of the fair, there will be a different theme, um, similar to what you would see, you know, during a physical fair, 10 different days. And uh, we've tried to... Uh, bring to life or bring to the people uh, traditional fair elements, be it entertainment, animals, um, the midway, food, agriculture. So um, a little bit of something for everybody, and uh, you know, we hope people will enjoy it. Excellent. Greg Blanchard joining us, the Director of Marketing and Communications at Western Fair District, as we look at how the fair is going to operate this year. So a little bit different, but still a lot of things to do, which is kind of unique and kind of opens our eyes to maybe some spots in the city that we don't tend to look at maybe as much as we should. Maybe we even take them for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This came from a larger project. Uh, I believe Tourism London uh, had been working with XR, 
And um, through uh, Celebrate Ontario funding from the provincial government, uh, they had already started working on a larger project. And, yeah, trying to explore different areas of London and explore some of the history and allow people to do that, but in a really unique uh, and modern way. And so, you know, we came into the, into the picture, um, about a month and a half ago. It, it was pulled together quickly. And, uh, that's why, you know, we're literally going out and, and doing, uh, some testing today, you know, to try and make sure everything, uh, works properly and that everything is ready to go for tomorrow. But, uh, it's exciting and it's amazing at the same time to see where technology is going. And, uh, you know, the fair's been around a long time, Mike. Uh, we've had to evolve uh, over the years many different times and adapt. And this is another example of that. Well, we won't ask you what is going to be deep fried at the fair this year because we do not we do not suggest that you take your phone or whatever device you're going to use to experience all of this and drop it any into any kind of hot oil. Do not do that. No, Phones don't, don't do respond that. well. We'll worry about deep frying some things next year. How about that? Well, and, and Mike, we should quickly mention that we will have some deep fried items that are parked at the market event next Wednesday. So that's going to be the food component of our fair this year. And that'll be the one aspect where people can come out, um, limited capacity, but people can come out in person. And uh, we're going to have a number of uh, food trucks at the the market next Wednesday. We'll have it decked out in kind of a fair decor theme that night. And uh, we've got a contest that we've actually had going on on social media uh, asking people their favorite deep-fried item, and uh, we can tell you we're going to have the winning entrant um, featured at our food mo- mobile that night. So uh, come on out next Wednesday, and we've got food fair, fair food boxes that we're unveiling this year that we're going to be delivering to people's homes as well. They can order them online, and they've got all your favorite fair treats, so you can experience it um, a few things uh, in real time, Mike. Uh, not everything's virtual. Wow. Well, at least that is there. That's You guys have thought of so many things. So we can actually <laughs> order fair food. You can. A fair food box. Uh, I think the, the price point's $30 for the smaller box and 50 for the large. And uh, I'm telling you, they're, they're absolutely stuffed with everything from candy floss, caramel corn, candy apples, jumbo pretzels, funnel cake, you name it. It's going to be in that box. You've got us covered. Anything else we need to know, Greg, before we go and before we await the official kickoff tomorrow at 3 in the afternoon? Well, that that's really, uh, I think, the, the, the critical things. Again, we urge people to uh, stop by our website, westernfair.ca, uh, for all the information and uh, everything they need to know is there. And tickets are on sale, by the way, for next year already. Advanced tickets on sale and the first 500 who purchase in advance We'll receive a, a free front-of-the-line pass for next year. So um, we just want to remind folks that you know, we are looking forward to being back in person next year and uh, and are already planning, and we can't wait. Well, in the meantime, you've taken care of us, and you've still given us that fair feeling, and you don't have to worry about getting to the fair. It can actually come to you in the way of candy flaws and other treats in the mail, or you can take advantage of so many things. Once again, the app that we're looking for, Greg, is... Engage Art, capital A-R, capital A-R, small t. Beautiful. You keep safe, and uh, we'll enjoy the fair for the next couple of weeks. We really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Mike.
That's Greg Blanchard, who is the Director of Marketing and Communications at Western Fair District. And again, there are so many things that can't be done the way that they were done. And that's, that's just the way it is. You're not going to wave a magic wand or throw a bubble over Western Fair and say, yeah, well, th- this is exempt. It's not the way the world works right now. But the idea could be, let's just cancel. Let's just not have it. They're not doing that. So they found other ways to involve everybody. So Engage Art is the app, and you can still get your box of food, or you can head down to the market, and you can take advantage of food trucks and all kinds of other things that will be there. But don't, don't deep fry your phone. I really, I was being honest. There has been an issue that involves a lot of finances and involves a a bit of a fight that has been going on that has now reached a settlement. It's been going on for about, what, at least three years. Some would say as many as five, depending on how we want to look at this. In 2017, it was learned that the City of London was looking at expropriating the home of Nan Finlayson at 100 Stanley Street and widening Warncliffe Road at Horton and repairing the railway overpass. Well, in the years that followed, Finlayson has fought against the decision. Yesterday, there was a resolution. And Nan Finlayson has agreed to leave her home. She's being compensated for her home. And that now takes us to what happens next. As we talk with Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner on this story. Councillor Turner, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of go back through this and, and how it has gone. After the new year began... There, there kind of was a, a turn in the story. What exactly did we see going back a couple of months ago that may have led to where we are now? Uh, well, we've uh, we've been negotiating uh, for for some time. I think expropriation is probably one of the uh, uh, the more extreme exercises of municipal power, and we have to use that really sparingly. So, uh, right up from the, the get go, uh, we asked staff to uh, to explore every option uh, to say you know what what how could the uh, the project be engineered in such a way that might be able to uh, uh, to lessen the, the requirement for expropriations and the land needs um, could uh, could we find some other uh, solution that uh, that might meet Mr.'s uh, desires uh, worked really hard for for quite some time as you noted there uh, at the end of the day uh, we, we weren't able to find that solution. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that we, we've been able to to get to a point that uh, that the compensation for the property uh, has has been accepted. I, I know that's not what Ms. Finlayson wanted, and uh, and it's, it's sad to see. Um, it, it's also a really really critical piece of infrastructure uh, and, uh, and quite an important project for the city of London. So uh, it's it's good that we can uh, we can start moving forward. Uh, Ms. Finlayson's uh, home wasn't the only uh, piece of land that's uh, that's subject to uh, to being purchased or, or expropriated. Uh, there's quite a, a bit of a corridor that's required in order to uh, to be able to make room for this project. And, uh, and so that's uh, that's where we're at today. So were other residents in in kind of the same situation? Were other houses dealt with in a similar way? Yeah, residents and uh, and business owners are all in, in that. Uh, as you can see, the um, setbacks from the road are very very tight. Uh, basically, there's a sidewalk and then a, the wall of the building uh, in in quite a number of locations there. And uh, this is uh, this is going to widen that thoroughfare. 
Uh, but on top of that, there's a, a significant amount of other work that has to happen. It's, it's a really dangerous intersection. Uh, it's not uh, built to today's standards. Uh, you know, the dip that goes underneath the rail bridge there, that all has to be brought down. The, the grade has to be reduced so that um, so that the approach is, uh, is a little safer. Uh, there's also a trunk sewer that leads to Greenway Sewage Treatment Plant, uh, and that uh, needs to be replaced and repaired at the same time. The uh, the Warncliffe Bridge over the Thames is also getting repaired, and the, the bridge itself, uh, the train bridge itself, uh, has to be built in a way that uh, they build the bridge uh, directly beside the current bridge and then knock the other one out of the way and slide the new one in, uh, all in a very a short period of time because we can't interrupt the, the rail traffic. So... This is probably one of the more complex engineering projects uh, that the city's faced in some time. We're talking with Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner about what happens next now that the project can move forward. And Councillor Turner, you've called it a very important project. If we're to picture things right now, if you're going north on Warncliffe and you approach Horton and you go under the bridge that can drip on you because it retains water, it's a very, very old bridge. There was a picture that was posted by Vintage London and it had a horse-drawn carriage and it was going underneath the bridge. The bridge looks the same right now, other than, well, it's been paved on on the the, uh, the ground below what was then horse hooves, and now we have car tires. But that's a bottleneck and a half, and then there's Stanley Street that comes out, and it is not exactly what you would call a safe intersection and, and not up to today's standards, as you indicated. So what will this ultimately look like once everything is finished? Yeah. So uh, as he described that northbound as it approaches Horton uh, and Springbank there, um, the uh, the left turn that uh, comes when uh, going uh, eastbound from uh, from Warncliffe onto Stanley, that left turn won't happen anymore. The left turn will happen uh, at the intersection at the lights uh, at uh, at Horton and Warncliffe. So that makes it a lot safer because now it's a controlled intersection rather than that really really dangerous left turn that's uh, that's happening now. Um, it'll be uh, a number of lanes wider. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's an additional three lanes wider. So it allows for uh, a right turn lane uh, when you're northbound uh, to head to west on Springbank. It uh, allows for two through lanes and allows for a left turn lane uh, heading eastbound on Horton. Uh, and then it allows for two full lanes coming northbound. Uh, sorry, yeah, I get my directions mixed up. Uh, that's all in the southbound direction. And then two uh, northbound lanes that um, that will allow uh, straight fl- uh, flow through traffic right now. Uh, as it stands uh, just south of the intersection at Warncliffe and Horton, there's um, there's a, a right turn lane that leads you eastbound. That'll actually allow for just straight flow through traffic and uh, and right turns. So the efficiency of that intersection will be uh, significantly improved. And uh, there's been a, a bit of a, a, an intent to try and uh, shift focus onto the north-south route of Warncliffe uh, rather than uh, Richmond and, and Wellington as those two north-south routes, um, just to be able to move uh, traffic uh, efficiently from the north end of the city to the south end and vice versa. Sure. And I suppose a, a final question, the timeline on this, when would all of this look to begin? Yeah, so uh, my understanding is that uh, a lot of the utility work has been uh, looked to, to start very soon. Uh, those relocates and, uh, and making sure that um, kind of prep work is getting started. And then um, my belief is that uh, the, the shovels in the ground, the big work uh, starts next year. 
uh, and would continue on from there. Uh, probably, it's a it's a longer project because of all those different uh, components to it. Councillor Turner, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on the next steps. And again, Nan Finlayson had. You know, had a tough time agreeing to this, but in the end did, and we will see this project now unfold. Councillor Turner, keep safe. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Mike. I'll talk to you soon. That is Councillor Stephen Turner, Ward 11 Councillor in the City of London. And you have to feel for Nan Finlayson, and you do. And she ultimately made a very difficult decision, but has admitted to several news agencies that she's she's happy with the new home and... So this now moves forward. We will do the same. We'll move to news, which comes up next, get you up to date on all sorts of things. The Premier has not only weighed in on the almost $7 billion of COVID spending that was apparently just sitting there, and the accusations are coming that that was just there to help the bottom line. I still am hesitant to fire full bore on that because the pandemic's not over, and If you get an amount of money at the beginning of a month and you spend it all in the first three days, then you're left with no money for the rest of the month. I don't want our province to be in that because this pandemic isn't going to end tomorrow. It isn't going to end next week. We don't know when it's going to end, hopefully sooner rather than later, but you still want to have some funding for things that you may need. So let's let's hang on a second. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.